this is Patriot to the Core Podcast, and I am your host, Thad Forrester. Thank you for listening to what is now episode number 19. Today's guest is Larry Moores, uh, who was a platoon leader on the ground at the Battle of Mogadishu, uh, which is uh, known you know, as Black Hawk Down. Uh, he was a member of the, the 3rd Ranger Battalion, and uh, he just describes what it was like on the, on the ground there when their, their mission quickly changed to a search and rescue after the, the Black Hawks were shot down. And uh, he just tells us some things that they learned from that mission, what it was like there in the, in the, you know, kind of in the heat of it. And so I had a great conversation with him and he's a very generous guy. He was, uh, you know, very, very generous with his time. And so I really appreciate him. So I'll bring him on. Okay. Mr. Larry Moores, uh, before we get into, to, you know, the Black Hawk Down story, would you, would you kind of just give me your background in the army and, you know, why you joined and, and, uh, leading up to, uh, your your mission your battle to the battle of Mogadishu. Sure, uh, yeah, just a, a little uh, military background. I was a an Air Force brat as a kid. Uh, my dad was a, a B fifty two maintenance guy. I was born out in Western Oklahoma, so my brother and I had some of that service and, and military instilled in us in, in young ages. Um, we my brother was accepted to West Point to the military academy when I was a, a junior in high school, so that even heightened it more. Um, I was a hockey player in school and wasn't quite as academic as my brother was. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, I didn't apply to, to school. I, I, I wanted to join the military, build a little, uh, discipline and, and, uh, my brother gave me some great advice. You'll go, go to a good unit when you go in and you'll, you'll build a good foundation, whether you decide to get out and go to school or whether you decide to, uh, stay in the military, either way, it's going to help you. Uh, and you know, as a, 17-year-old kid, I didn't really take that for what it was worth, and now I look back at it like, like, wow, that was that was amazing. Uh, from a 19-year-old brother to a 17-year-old little brother, uh, it, it really paid big dividends. Uh, so I went straight to the Rangers as a as a young kid, um, 18 years old. I left home um, six days after I graduated from high school. Uh, went right to the Rangers and uh, deployed uh, about a year later to Grenada as a young uh, young enlisted soldier. Um, just about a year in service in the army, but again, a tremendous experience seeing this community and how it worked and how everybody shouldered more than their share. Uh, and, and it really taught me a lot of lessons about, you know, when, when you have the right people on your right and left, um, and you don't have to worry about what they're doing and you can concentrate on, on your mission. It, it really makes the whole task force responsibility that much easier and we'll talk about that a little more as we keep going but that that responsibility and accountability piece really was driven home at a young age uh, if you do what you're supposed to and people don't have to worry about you it, it makes everybody else's role that much easier um, so I again I spent uh, a couple tours in the Rangers as an enlisted guy um, went down to Panama in between uh, Ranger assignments jumped down there in, in Central America for a couple of years uh, did a year in Korea, um, went back to the Rangers as a staff sergeant, uh, and then left the first Ranger Battalion right before, uh, Panama in, in 1989. Uh, I was accepted to an assignment in Washington, DC, uh, was able to get a couple years of schooling under my belt and accepted to the officer candidate school. So, you know, while I loved, uh, being a, an NCO and working with the type of people I did, um, I also had a desire uh, to to do more and to to, to get a commission and, and see the leadership from a little different perspective. 
as a young ranger, as a 18, 19 year old kid, I, uh, I really had some tremendous leaders, both junior and, and senior officers that I worked with had an impact on me. And I always thought if I, if I could, if I could have at least 80% of that impact on people that I led, then I was getting somewhere uh, because they were so good. Uh, and it, it really made me uh, driven to be better as I came up through the ranks. And again, the deployments helped uh, solidify that, that, hey, when, when we have a good team and we train hard and we do everything we're supposed to, uh, it makes these deployments and, and your ability to go into a bad situation a, a little bit easier. So how did you, or, or maybe clarify this for me as a civilian, because uh, I've been confused about this over the years. I think I've got it, but a ranger, there's you could, there's actually a unit, a ranger unit. But there's also people who go to the ranger school that can be called a ranger. Is that is that how it works, or what's the difference? Yeah, that's, that's correct. So so ranger school is run by the the ranger department at Fort Benning, and it's a it's it's the army's premier leadership school. It's 58 days. Um, you you don't eat well. You you get a lot of leadership challenges along the way jumping out of planes, uh, not getting the right amount of sleep. And they, they really test uh, your ability to lead in difficult situations. So, And that's the kind of test you want as a young leader in the military. Uh, so a lot of people want to go to that school because it, it shows your capabilities in tough circumstances. And, and what you want to do is you want to you try and emulate that difficult situation from a leadership challenge before you actually get into um, a hostile fire situation and you, know, you don't want to get too far on the, the the opposite side of the risk assessment spectrum <laughs> uh, and start getting people injured or, or killed in training but you you, you want to test them as much as you can within the limits of uh, of, of that, that tough training spectrum so the, the school is available to a lot of different people in the army but the ranger regiment is where uh, active duty rangers serve there's there's four battalions uh, uh, first battalion is in Savannah, Georgia. The second battalion's in Fort Lewis, Washington. The third battalion's in Columbus at Fort Benning. And the Ranger Support Battalion is uh, is in uh, Fort Benning also, uh, where the the Ranger Regimental Headquarters is. So the uh, you know the, the units are there. Uh, it's a very specific selection process uh, to get in. Uh, there's a there's an eight week uh, selection program for the young soldiers, and then there's a, a somewhat shorter uh, selection and training program for the the senior NCOs and officers to get in. So it's it's not open to everybody. There's a, a, a very uh, tough selection process to get in, and, and every time you leave, you have to go through that same process to get back in. So when I left uh, a couple times, and uh, the, the regiment hired me back, and I had to go through the same selection process no matter what rank I was. So it's uh, on, on that behalf, you know, the, the regiment does a great job of, of keeping the right people there, keeping you fresh, uh, making sure you're meeting the standards and, and being able to do that. So. Okay. All right. Thanks for clearing that up. I wanted yep. to make sure. I've heard several people I've met over the years, you know, say I'm a ranger or somebody said he's a ranger. But I think in that case, they were, they had gone through the school. But they weren't actually in a battalion, a ranger battalion. Sure. Okay. Yeah. The ranger's a very small community. You know, there's a, there's that joke about the, the special operations folks in the military there you know less than one percent of the population in america is in the military and about one percent of the military is special operations 
And a guy said, why is it every time I go to a bar, everybody's in special operations? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting perspective. It's one of those things that a, a lot of people want to do, and uh, some people gave it a shot, and they might not have got there, but that's a it's a better story to tell than uh, it is. Than it is. I didn't make it. You know, well, the way I am is if somebody just voluntarily tells me something like that early on in the conversation, I don't believe them. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, some, uh, some hesitation to, to, to buy into that. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd like to talk about the uh, your preparation now. When you, you, how did you, like, how much time did you have to prepare specifically for the mission to Mogadishu? Well, it's interesting. We, we were actually, uh, we were deployed on a, a joint readiness training exercise. The, every quarter, the, the Rangers and all the joint special operations community do big exercises in different locations. And we were training in uh, Fort Bliss, Texas. Uh, so we were out on an exercise. We were doing all kinds of training. And we were alerted while we were out there in Texas. Uh, and our home base was in Georgia. We never went back to, uh, to Georgia to get any gear to tell anybody. We went straight to Fort Bragg to start training, and we had about an eight-day train-up process. So that was uh, the extent of it. We we were alerted in Texas. We flew to North Carolina. We linked up with our teammates, and uh, and we went through a seven, eight-day build-up of here's different possible scenarios we could end up working, a template of how we're going to execute these missions, and and we built from there. Uh, so it was it was very quick. Uh, down and dirty. We weren't getting into too many specifics, uh, but we felt comfortable as a task force that this was the right group of people to put together to go do this. Uh, but I think the Rangers, more than anybody, are suited to do these type of missions because uh, you you have an amazing foundation they build by doing repetitive training uh, over and over. And sometimes it seems like it's over repetitive, but by having that great training base and, and understanding the fundamentals well, it really gives you the opportunity to do other branches and sequels off of that training foundation. So, uh, so that really helped us uh, as we went down there and started doing a lot of different operations. Well, I figured you didn't have much time to prepare. Uh, yeah. What, yeah. what was your mission specifically? Uh, the, the mission of the task force or the mission in specific to, to my element? Correct. Um, For yeah. you, your element. To, in yeah. Well, uh, overall, our, our mission was to go down there and, and find uh, uh, Adid, who was the clan leader who was uh, really causing a lot of turmoil in the, the city of Mogadishu at the time. So once we got down there, we realized we couldn't find him specifically. Our task force was uh, to identify his lieutenants, any subordinates underneath him where we could go in, uh, disrupt their information chain, disrupt their leadership and get people to talk and find out where the senior folks were. Uh, my specific mission as the uh, the ground reaction force uh, platoon leader, uh, I was one of three rifle platoon leaders down there, and uh, I, I was I was responsible for all the convoy escorts, uh, the blocking force for the mission inserts, and we also had a third mission of of setting up the combat search and rescue mission for any downed aircraft. Uh, so we would go into certain parts of the city. Uh, test uh, light poles on how much demo it took to knock down a, a light pole in case we had to cut down a, a power lines for a helicopter to get in or, or a wall outside a building complex to see what kind of demo charges we would need. So we, we, we ran a lot of these different scenarios and tests on, on, on these capabilities that we had to have. So we, we, we stayed active. Uh, we, we tried not to 
set a big signature every time we left the compound that we were doing a mission. So we tried to stay active in the city and do a lot of different things. Um, How far was the compound from you know where all the action was taking place? Your compound. Um, yeah, well, we lived on the airfield in Mogadishu City. So when we rolled outside the gate, uh, you know, it was a quarter mile from the, the hangar where we lived out into the city. So every time we we went out the gate, we were in enemy territory. Okay. So it was it was super close. We, we, we lived amongst them. The high ground was just to the north of where we were, uh, where our facility was. So they had they had eyes on and, and kept a pretty good visibility on on a lot of our day to day activities, where we were going, what we were doing. So it was it, it was tough from a uh, counter intel perspective to try and. Uh, show them that we were doing things other than going into the city to find their their lieutenants and their leadership. So, so, so I guess can you walk us through because uh, we all know things went things went wrong. But what from your perspective and your team, you know what happened and and then when did they go wrong and how did it affect your group? Sure. Um, again, from a from a ground perspective, um, this was the seventh different mission, major mission that we had conducted. Uh, obviously, the 3rd and 4th of October uh, gets a lot more visibility because of the books and because of the everything, the way that day turned out. But we had conducted six very successful missions up to that date. Uh, we had captured a lot of subordinate leadership of Adeeds. We had gone into different parts of the city in, in vehicle convoys, in just aircraft, in complete package, in daylight, nighttime. We tried to change up the scenario so it wasn't always the same type of package um but you know you, you look at the third and fourth of october and, and it's interesting because it, you know we went in during the daylight we made a lot of tactical decisions based on prior missions uh the guys who fast roped in in the blocking positions didn't bring night vision because the majority of our missions up to that point were an hour hour and a half max time so we, we tailored our loads based on prior missions and, and expectations on the mission that we were conducting. Um, from a ground forces perspective that day, it was much different when we went into the city because there was, there was uh, fire from different blocking positions. Uh, we had guys wounded very quickly during the day. And, and prior missions, we'd had people uh, – Engaged, we'd had guys wounded. We, we we had been in some pretty good firefights up to that point, but nothing like on the third. So, uh, you know, from a from a, a ground perspective, a tactical perspective that we conducted, they were much more prepared for our launch that day than they had been on previous days. They they brought in additional fighters. They had a different additional weapon systems, um, and and they they were able to really change the face. Of that operation by 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 hitting one of the Blackhawks with with RPGs. Uh, Did you again, get a I, sense from the from the maybe a feeling or something that day that they had stepped up their game and they were prepared to, to really to to really attack it with much more force that day? Yeah, you never want to underestimate, and uh, I I don't think we went into missions overconfident. We we always were prepared. We always took the task force that was suited for that specific area. We knew that we were going into a tougher part of the city that day, but I don't think we went in expecting the numbers and the amount of weapon systems and, and the amount of fighters that were available to them. Uh, you know, could they have been available on prior missions? 
you know, yes, obviously it's it's their city, and for some reason they they flipped the switch that day and decided that they wanted to fight and be more proactive in, in what they were doing. Could they have done that on mission four? Most certainly. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm an infantry guy, and I trained on a lot of different weapon systems. Uh, I'm not an I'm not an expert with a RPG, um, but if you if you give me four or five of them and you you hover a Blackhawk uh, in a circle, you know you know 75 100 feet above me, I'm gonna hit it eventually. Um, so they they used a we've got a lot of these weapon systems. Let's keep shooting these rockets uh, until we get lucky, and they did. You know, and it it changed the whole scope of the the mission and the events that day. So. And it was it was 45 minutes after mission launch, so it really made a huge impact on uh, the sequence of events, our ability to get people out of the city, and then you know it turned into a, a day long operation versus a an hour you know 90 minutes that we originally expected. So when the Black Hawk is hit, how does your role change, and what are your responsibilities at that point? Sure. You know, once the once the first Blackhawk went in, it, it split the the elements. Uh, it becomes very difficult at that point to uh, to navigate within a city of enemy fighters who don't want you there. Uh, there's there's comments made in the book and in the movie about a lost convoy and inability to move from point A to point B. Uh, what they forget to take into consideration is that uh, the the enemy has a vote and. Uh, and they didn't want us to get from point A to point B. And, and as difficult as it is, and, and, and we were pretty comfortable in the city because we had been there for uh, a month and a half. We, we drove in the city, you know, four to five days a week and we felt comfortable in different parts of the city and understanding the people and, and whether they liked us or disliked us, if they threw stuff at us or if they welcomed us. Uh, so, you know, that day, once the aircraft went in, they had a, a vector point that they could concentrate their efforts on you know they, they didn't have elaborate communication systems they couldn't call uh platoon one and platoon four to maneuver to such and such an intersection but they had a helicopter that was crashed and they knew exactly where to go and and they did everything they could to keep uh our task force from getting to uh, those sites and then you know 20 minutes later you know the second aircraft went in and it even further uh complicated uh, the events, you know, you, you've got one, we, we split our, our ground reaction force at that point. Um, most of the personnel that were on foot that had fast roped into the main objective moved to the north crash site where Cliff Walcutt's aircraft was. And then, uh, I was in the second part of the convoy that tried to move to the southern crash site where Mike Durant was. So it became obvious fairly quickly that this was a different day, uh, a different type of fighting. They, again, they knew where these aircraft were, and they they actually had pretty basic signaling techniques that they used, but they were very effective. They would take a, a pile of trash, a couple of tires off of vehicles, they would light them in these intersections, and it was a great beacon to bring fighters in. Hey, here's this huge burning black smoke of tires. Uh, and they all moved to it. So again, they were pretty, uh, pretty efficient in the way they communicated and maneuvered within their own city uh, to do that. Wow. So how how long did what did you do? Did you ever get to Durant's Blackhawk, or you know, what are you? What, how are you leading your men and all that 
Good yeah, we, we 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 had been in the city about ten days earlier for a for another mission where where we went in in the middle of the night. We had a pretty direct route north south, which would have led us pretty close to where we thought Durant's aircraft was. When we left the compound that afternoon, we tried to use that similar route because we had just been up there. We ran into a, a, a huge obstacle that they had in place because we'd already been in there. So they knew we may try to use that route. They had blocked it. We couldn't go that way. We tried an alternate route to the south and, and came up uh, one road to the west of where Durant's aircraft was. So when we did the after-action review, after the mission was complete, we, we realized and saw the footage of how close we were. Uh, but again, uh, we, we were probably within 50 to 100 meters of Durant's aircraft at one point. Uh, with a, a huge engagement, the, the Somali fighters had moved to where that aircraft was. They were moving to the aircraft, and we were trying to come up against that wave of fighters. And 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 uh, the decision was made from leadership: Hey, don't fight through that objective that they're putting in place. Let's come back to the south and come up from a different angle. And you're on foot at this point. No, we were still in uh, we were still in Humvees at that point. So we we had a, a superiority advantage with the you know, the 50 cals and the Mark 19s that we had as part of our task force. So you know, we we would engage and continue to move where we wanted, uh, but still the, the the pure mass of Somali fighters. You know, there was there was a half a million people in that city that day, and, and they didn't want us there. So it became evident pretty early that this was going to be a fight all day long uh, to try and get to our troops that were at those crash sites and, and bring them all back. And so... Um, after that initial move uh, just south of Mike's crash site, we went back to the south, came up from the west to try and get into his objective. Uh, we linked up with the other half of the ground reaction force um, that was led by uh, Bob Gallagher, my platoon sergeant. They were terribly uh, shot up, uh, had a series of casualties in their vehicles. And they were pushing one of the Humvees down the road because it wasn't uh, mobile anymore. It was a it was a, a tough scene at that point. So what we did at that, we were just north of the K4 circle when you're looking at a map of the city. K4 circle was a big intersection, which was just north of our uh, aircraft hangar that we operated out of. So that was one of the hubs that we drove through, and it would spider off to all different parts of the city. We were just north of K4 circle when we linked up with Bob and the other half of the, the Humvee force, and we cross-loaded all the casualties, uh, the talk. Uh, back at the airfield, gave us directions at that point to to burn the, the disabled vehicle uh, and then make our way back to the airfield with the amount of casualties that we had taken, uh, download the casualties, and then get ready for another insertion back into the city. Uh, so that's what everything looked like as the sunlight was starting to, to fade on Sunday, the 3rd of October. So how many people were still left out there that you knew of when you had yeah, there was. There was 90 people uh, that were north still between Crash Site 1 and Crash Site 2. 90 Americans. Uh, uh, correct. Wow. As we as we exfilled our, uh, our task force in the ground vehicles uh, back to the airfield at, at uh, sundown, uh, that was the status. Uh, and then we started the... The, the new mission of, of linking up with the coalition forces and the 10th Mountain Division uh, to prepare to go back out that night in armored vehicles 
to, to lead the task force back up to the two crash sites to recover everybody. Did you have any advantage at nighttime with, you know, the sophisticated equipment or did that even uh, matter? Uh, yeah, we did. We, we had a huge advantage. The, the tough thing, and I, I mentioned it earlier, was the, the guys who fast roped in um, earlier in the day at, at three o'clock uh, had decided not to bring their night vision devices. And then when they're there at, at nightfall, uh, they're at a big disadvantage. Uh, they were able to recover uh, a few pairs of night vision devices from the aircraft that had went in, and they used those, uh, but not until we linked up with them uh, later in the night. We had our vehicle, so we had a full uh, complement of night vision. We brought extra gear with us, and so we were able to resupply and, 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 and augment that ability to fight at night and have a, a control over that situation. Uh, so, so what went on at nighttime, and, and were you in the vehicles the whole time, or you split between that and your feet, or what? Yeah, well, I stayed in the Humvees. Uh, the 10th Mountain folks from their QRF, uh, they cross-loaded into the, um, the, the BTRs, the, the Malaysian vehicles. And the Pakistanis uh, provided us with a, a few tanks who were using uh, them to, to block some of the uh, the roadblocks and obstacles that could just bust through that. So we had a, a task force that provided us more capability uh, to bust through obstacles to, to provide that armor support. Uh, but my element, uh, my platoon in the Rangers uh, was uh, was still in the Humvee. So we spent the entire night. Um, we left about 11 o'clock. So it was about a five-hour uh, prep process uh, of linking up with the, the coalition forces, teaching them about our weapon systems. They they had never used night vision goggles before, so we're trying to teach them on the fly how to use some of this new equipment so we can take this entire force back up to the two crash sites uh, and, and uh, exfil our, our folks that are stuck up there. Were you taking much enemy fire during the night? Um, as we were doing the we, – we had come back into the U.N. compound uh, – at nightfall, and then when we linked up with the Malaysians and the Pakistanis and the Tenth Mountain folks, we were under the protection of the um, the, the UN compound. So at 11:20 uh, that night, when we pulled back out into the city, uh, we immediately again they at this point we had a pretty specific mission. We we knew we had to get from point A to point B uh, to secure those two crash sites to recover anybody that was still there and then come back. Uh, the Somalis also knew that. They knew where those two helicopters were, and they knew where we were, and they knew that they had to keep us from getting there. So it was a pretty constant and intense firefight from the minute we pulled out of the gates that night. Uh, we fought for almost three hours um, to get from the airfield back up to where the two crash sites were. Well, so what happened next, and when, when did you... When did you decide? Okay, now we can we can go back to the to base again. Well, it was uh, it was about zero two uh, when we linked up with the two crash sites. Uh, our ground reaction force split. We sent uh, a small element down to where. So we were on uh, National Road. National Street was about uh, halfway between the two crash sites when we when we worked our way back through the city. Uh, we sent one element to the south to search uh, Durant's aircraft site, and then we sent the uh, half of the BTRs that were going to be used to exfil casualties up to the northern crash site where Cliff Walcott was. Again, the, the intent from our commander, uh, 
the, the task force ranger commander was that we would recover everybody, get all casualties accounted for, uh, everybody extracted from the aircraft before we would leave that objective site. So that, that was the delay. Uh, removing the casualties from the aircraft proved much more difficult and, uh, and took much longer than we thought it would. So at that point, did you know – now, my memory is not great here. So was Cliff Walcott killed? He was, yes. Okay. Did Cliff you know and his, uh, his co-pilot were both killed in the aircraft when they went in. So did you know at that time they were killed? Yes. Okay. And what about Mike Durant? Did you know the status of him? Um, Mike was missing when, when, when the, the elements split and half of our force went to the southern crash site. Um, Mike, there, there was no personnel at the southern crash site, so there was an accountability issue there. Uh, Mike and his co-pilot and the two uh, task force operators that fast roped in uh, were, were unaccounted for at that point. So. Okay. So what's next then? How do you, how do you move from that? Well, uh, we exfilled the people out of crash site two and we continued with the uh, recovering everybody from crash site one. Uh, again, it took us a while to extract uh, Cliff and his co-pilot from that aircraft. Uh, the decision was finally made. Hey, let, let's get everybody out of that aircraft. Once that's complete, we'll have everybody accounted for from crash site one, all the casualties that had been there overnight in those buildings uh, waiting for exfil. Uh, and then starting the, our element moving, uh, back to the east. And then the Pakistani stadium was the, the exfil point where we were moving everybody to, uh, in vehicles. And that, that it was a, the Pakistani soccer stadium was a good location to choose. It was within the UN border protection again. And it provided a, a, a walled facility for the, medevac helicopters to come in and exfil the high amount of uh, of casualties that had been taken that night. So the, the aircraft kept coming in. Um, they, 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 you know, by the time we got to uh, the Pakistani stadium, you know, fought our way. You know, at this point, it's daylight again. By the time we, we recovered everybody, uh, we're, we're losing our ability to, to have control over a nighttime capability with, uh, with our night vision goggles, uh, once the sun comes up, we called it the the great equalizer. You know, they they knew where we were, uh, they knew who we were, and they didn't want us there. So it, again, the fight continued uh, that next morning until we were able to work our way back to that stadium and, and provide some protection for the task force. So when so, was your mission over? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, when we arrived at the stadium, um, there was a it was a very difficult situation because we we finally realized the true extent of uh, you know the amount of casualties the 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 amount of wounded the amount of people that needed to be evacuated uh, and it was difficult because we never we never give names or anything on the uh, on the radio calls and our task force had been separated since early the afternoon before so you know for for 18 hours we had heard of people you know uh, bleeding out during the night other casualties being taken but we never knew who they were so that next day at the Pakistani stadium was the, the, the real uh, realization of, of what the night had, had done to the task force. So it was a, it was a tough situation to, to bring the task force back together uh, and, and see the true extent of the battle. Um, we, we got everybody exfilled. Everybody was flown back to the airfield. And then the commander told me that I had to, our vehicles were really shot up. We had, 
uh, two of them that were hit with RPGs that were still functioning. Uh, most of them were operating on the run flat tires. Uh, uh, a lot of the windshields had been shot out, uh, so it was a it was a moving uh, you know motor pool nightmare. <laughs> I'd say you know the uh, the vehicles did a great job though. They they kept us going from point A to point B, and we we did what we needed. Uh, but my boss said, hey, we need to drive those vehicles back to the airfield so we can use them later and get them fixed up. Um, and at that point, on the 4th of October, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to do was get, get back in those vehicles yeah. and drive anywhere in the city. So they, they, they provided uh, air cover. They had some of the little birds and some cobras uh, that flew air cover, and we were able to skirt around to the north and came in a, a back way where there wasn't much visibility or or, uh, or urban area, we were able to skirt around most of it and get back. But it was a, it was a tough day at that point. But, but again, our our, our senior bosses uh, gave us a pretty quick turn on, hey, you know, we know, uh, we know you guys just had your nose bloodied. We got in a good fight, but we have some people that are unaccounted for, and and if we can find out where they are, we're going back in after them. So, so let's not feel sorry for ourselves, let's remain focused and, and let's get this task force back up on its feet and get ready for another mission if we can identify where any of these people are being held. So so, so did, did you go back out looking or what um, happened? Yeah, we did not. We, we uh, Two days later, uh, they started to fly in some reinforcements. So some, uh, some armored people came from the 24th Division with some Bradleys and M1 tanks, which were a, a great sight to see. Uh, another ranger company, another special operations unit came into country uh, and much needed reinforcements. And, and we kept training uh, every day for a, a once we realized that Mike Durant was being held, uh, we kept training for a mission to go back into the city uh, to recover Mike and, and find out you know, where he was and where he was being held. So, you know, our, you know General Garrison gave us pretty direct instructions that hey if we can if we can get a a good intel hit on where he's being held we're going so uh, again we we trained uh, on a, a variety of different extraction uh, opportunities both helo and and, and vehicle bound uh, but uh, it was a uh, 10 11 days later when when mike was finally released uh, back to the un and brought back to the airfield and, and then that ended uh, you know that opportunity to go back in after him Okay. So were you in there at the airfield the whole time? Uh, yeah, yeah. We continued to train. We had a couple of different locations that we used for our our training and, and live fire stuff, but we we stayed right there in our facility and and uh, uh, you're trying to recover the bodies that were missing and then find out where Mike Durant's location was. So what what were some of the lessons learned, you know, from this this whole battle over those few days? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know. The, the big things that I like to talk about is the, you know, the small unit leadership. You know, when, when people have uh, a good intent and understand the mission that they're going after, uh, it, it's amazing what, what, what young soldiers will do and, you know, step into spaces that are created by guys getting wounded. So, you know, it, it really was a great lesson in, uh, you know, leaders stepping in when other leaders were, uh, were wounded or, or taken off the mission. So, uh, from that perspective, um, you know, understanding the leader's intent and knowing what the mission is. So when squad leader uh, Jones gets wounded, his team leader moves right in and continues the mission. And there's never a loss in any uh, you know unit capability. So it was amazing to watch 
with the amount of people that we had injured and killed. And everybody just stepped up and took the next role. So mm-hmm. it really was a, a lot of hard training and, and, and people understanding the mission and, and being able to continue to execute. Um, one of the other lessons learned we talked about is, is physical fitness and you know, your ability to fight through you know, difficult missions like this. Uh, when adrenaline kicks in and your body's running, you know, 120% and, and you're not eating and you're not sleeping and it's just, it's a survival thing versus, you know, worrying about the, the simple little things. So, uh, when, when your life is on the line and, and you're trying to recover, uh, teammates and, and, and fellow Rangers, uh, you know, it's amazing what your system will do. Uh, you know, and then a day later, uh, there was that, that big crash afterwards when, uh, your system was finally able to, 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 to let down and, and, uh, and get some rest. Um, you know, the fitness piece is, is twofold too. We talked about, you know, recovery from wounds and the guys that were wounded pretty, pretty bad. Uh, you know, their ability to recover from wounds uh, a lot of times was a, a direct reflection to their physical fitness level before they were wounded. So these guys were, were physical specimens. You know, they were wounded. Uh, they recovered. They had that will to get back and be a part of the team. And they, they went through their recovery process and they came right back and were, were ready to get in it. You know, so, uh, you know, a couple angles there on fitness, but, uh, you know, these type of fights, uh, really take a toll on a system and a unit. And the, the, the better prepared you are for that from a fitness level, uh, you know, it, it really pays dividends later. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And then the last one that I, I, I talk about is, uh, is the, you know, the, the, the medical training. You know, when you, when you look at the numbers of people that we had, um, wounded and, and killed that day, uh, your, your basic allotment of, of medical folks doesn't cover uh, all the all the angles and and the medics you know the docs were amazing they, they were out there in the fight they're trying to pull casualties back under cover and they're getting wounded themselves so when, once you get a medic wounded that really messes up the the uh, the numbers on that ratio of how many how many guys you got for a medic to take care of <laughs> Yeah, you know, we had 18 killed and 80 more wounded out of 140 man task force so wow there was a lot of people who who understood the basics of of you know casualty treatment and, 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 you know, you know, stop the bleeding, treat for shock, do all the basic stuff and keep guys in the fight versus, um, not being able to do that and, and losing a guy because we weren't taking the right initial steps. So, and, you know, and I think the, the special ops units do that as well as anybody. They send additional people to EMT, to combat lifesaver, to, to, you know, the, the, the special ops medics go to the 18 Delta course. So they, they are very well prepared for the scenarios and they, they train other people on how to be effective when things are going bad around you. Uh, you know, we, we always, when we were out training, we, we'd always have the young guy, uh, give an IV in the middle of the night just to test his capabilities. And, you know, that stuff pays off when you're in a, when you're in a bad situation and, and he's got to give an IV for real. He's not doing it for the first time. Oh yeah. Well, this may be an obvious question, but just in the, I'm going to ask it anyway, cause you may have some different insight. How, how did this, this mission, you know, or this battle in Mogadishu, um, how was it different than some of your other missions like to Grenada or, or Panama or anywhere else? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think more than anything was the, the intensity and the, the size of the fight. You know, they, they talk about how, you know, the, that, that battle on the 3rd and 4th of October was as, as big uh, a ground combat battle as the U.S. had been in since, since Vietnam. So, you know, from the, the size and scope of what we were able to accomplish uh, under tough odds, uh, you know, it really was an amazing fight. You know, a lot of guys learn a lot about themselves. 
uh, a lot about um, their subordinates, about how people reacted under difficult situations. And, and I think, you know, a lot of them carried that forward into their, their lives now. You know, they, 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 they respect the guys that they lost. They, they came to closure with that. But they, they also realized that, hey, there's a lot of, a lot of positives that you can learn from these bad situations and, and, and put things into perspective. Hey, you know, when, when some people think things are bad around them, they're, they're not that bad. Uh, you know, I, I've been through worse and, and I can, uh, I can relate to it, but I, I also can work around it and get back to what's important. You know, so uh, I think from that perspective, you know, it's a, it, it's great to see, uh, you know, our task force who got put in a tough situation, uh, grew because of it. We, we, we had a lot of great lessons learned. Uh, we, we changed a lot of what happened with the special ops community. Uh, you know, this is 1993 and, and, you know, nine years, eight years later in, in 2001, they're getting ready to redeploy to Afghanistan. And, and, uh, and, and a lot of the lessons learned from Somalia were worked into the community and, and changed for the positive and had a, a great impact when they went into the next series of conflicts, you know, less than 10 years later. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good good point. Is there anything that you could, that you can share specifically that was learned from Somalia that was implemented and used later on in the war on terror? Well, yeah, you know, a couple things uh, specifically, like the Humvees that we used were just basic Humvees that we, we tinkered with. We, we added some Kevlar plating from some of the, the Blackhawks that they had extra, uh, Kevlar blankets. So, you know, we didn't want to go into a mined area. So we, we enhanced our Humvees, uh, you know, the, the up armored Humvees that they use now in, in, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan are, are armored. They have turrets on top. Uh, they protect the gunners up on top of those vehicles. Uh, our guys, uh, I had, I had eight Humvees out there that night, four, four marked 19 and 450 cow gunners, and they had zero protection in that turret other than that weapon that they were firing. So, I, those guys had more courage than, than anybody else out there. And they, you know, they could, they understood the importance of that weapon system and, and they kept it in the fight. So, uh, you know, I, my hat's off to that, that team and, and what they were able to do, uh, again, under tough circumstances. Um, you know, the other one uh, that was a, a switch, uh, you know, again, we were right in the city in the airfield in, in Mogadishu and, uh, we left a big signature when, uh, our task force took off with, you know, 12, 13 helicopters and 10 Humvees. And it was, it was a pretty big group of folks that were going in the city. Uh, you know, not a year later in, in Haiti, uh, for the, the mission, uh, in the Ranger jump down there, you know, they, they had one of the Ranger battalions on the USS America. So they, they totally changed the ability to, to move that signature, launch off an aircraft carrier from the ocean and not give them a, a lot of, lead time on where that that strike force was coming from again and, and then they they used that again when the war started in afghanistan you know the the, the i was on the kitty hawk uh off the, the coast of um uh, southern afghanistan when they, they were doing helicopter operations into afghanistan when the war first started uh, so again they they used those lessons learned and the ability to to use a new launch uh, platform uh, with less signature to, to still conduct the same type of operations. Mm, okay. W- were you injured during the uh, issue? I, I was not. Uh, okay. So I'm not a very big guy, so I I, uh, I was never a very big target. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, ev- everybody had a little something. 
you know, all the, the a lot of the windows were shot out. People were cut. People had a lot going on. But you know, there was a lot of people that were wounded and and uh, shot up pretty bad that day. So it was a uh, it was a um, an ability to to keep the task force and everything moving from from point A to point B. Um, they, they they a couple of days after the big fight, they, they asked anybody that had um, shrapnel or or glass wounds, no matter what it was. Uh, to go up to one of the aid stations just to get some x-rays uh, to see a, you might have a, a cut in your chin or, or in your shoulder, uh, but there could be a lump of metal in there also. So they just wanted to identify that kind of uh, uh, internal injuries that you couldn't tell right away. Uh, so it was interesting to see, you know, some of the, the shrapnel wounds, some of the guys who, hey, this is something that's not really bothering me, uh, but it could have turned into something a lot worse once we identified what those were. Okay. Well, what about now? What What are some of the things that you talk to? Because I know you, you, you meet new people all the time and you speak to groups. So what are some of the things that you speak to groups now about? Well, I, again, I, I think some of the, the lessons learned from what we did in uh, in, in Somalia, the you know, the difficult situation that our folks got put in and, and, and were able to come through it. Uh, I, I hit on those similar topics about, about leadership, about mentorship, about okay about taking care of uh, your subordinates because uh, that always comes back around um, in in the next capacity, whether you're still in uniform and get promoted and they come work for you again, or if you're a civilian and someone needs to call you and, and, and ask for assistance, that, that mentorship piece is huge. And so you never know when you're going to run into somebody who, who did you a good deed before, but you know, keeping those bonds and, and, and keeping those connections are, are, are huge, especially with the, you know, the mentor type of platform that we're working with the, the Three Rangers Foundation. Um, uh, we, we look to get guys who have been through similar situations who want to help, uh, who, who want to stay connected in the veteran space and, and want to be a part of our team and, in, in, in helping vets and, and showing their, uh, their commitment to this fight that's been going on for 15 years now. Um, one of the other things we talk about is, is, is responsibility and accountability. Uh, I think that's one of the things we're missing right now. Uh, and, and, and trying to get that instilled in, uh, a younger generation, uh, showing that, hey, when you accept, uh, that, hey, I, I made a mistake or I did something wrong, it doesn't matter if you're a leader, uh, or if you're a subordinate. If you take that step and, and, and people understand that, Hey, this guy's being accountable for what he did, and they'll respect you even much more afterwards. Uh, so, some people want to try and deflect that, and and I think in our uh, our society and our government today, if we had a little more um, accountability and responsibility for actions, uh, it would really help out. Um, you know, we we also talk a little bit with our foundation about uh, you know the situation we're in with a a lot of wounded veterans and you know PTSD issues with this 15th year of the war now. Um, I, I love that there are foundations like ours who are willing to help and that there are a lot of patriotic Americans who want to support us and donate money and, and be a part of our programs. But I also believe that we need to carry a message to, to Washington, D.C. and to our, our leadership that uh, when, when, when I take young soldiers into battle, whether it's Somalia or Afghanistan or wherever it might be, our government has a responsibility to treat them. For the rest of their lives, we, we took them into battle. They got wounded. There shouldn't be a cap on care uh, for a soldier based on his injuries that have to be filled by a wounded warrior project or a three rangers foundation or the lead the way fund. Uh, it should be covered. 
uh, it should be there shouldn't be any gaps, and and that's a void that we're trying to fill um, by by speaking to people. Hey, again, I I love what I do, and I, I love the foundation work, um, but I wish that there wasn't a need uh, for forty thousand nonprofits uh, to try and fill these voids that are created by someone else not doing their job. Oh yeah, good point. Well, how are things going with with Three Rangers Foundation? Um, it's good. Um, uh, this is our second year now. We're getting a lot of uh, a lot of positive uh, feedback. We're, we're helping a, a, a big group of vets. Uh, again, it's it's very rewarding to be able to reach back to a community that you grew up in. Um, I I left home on my 18th birthday, and most of my adult life was spent in uniform. And, and being able to reach back into that community and help a soldier in need is really a great feeling. So. Uh, I love the work. Um, you know, we're connected to the uh, the Three Rangers project. Uh, uh, we have a whiskey label uh, that's very successful. It's a, a premium rye whiskey. Uh, it's it's being sold across the United States now. It's picking up a lot of visibility and, and momentum. Uh, and the the Three Rangers whiskey uh, sales uh, help provide uh, you know the proceeds from the sales help out our foundation with our administrative costs. So all of our donations from, you know, patriotic folks out there go to help vets instead of paying our overhead fees and, and salaries or, or, or costs associated with doing our business. So we love that model. Um, you know, we hope the whiskey really gets a, a lot of visibility this second year uh, after January and uh, gets going in more places. Uh, we're selling it now in uh, AFES through the, the military exchange PX system. The Navy exchange has picked up a contract. So it's uh, it's getting a lot of visibility. Uh, we're getting some great feedback, and you know the foundation grows uh, because of this also. So we're we're excited about uh, our our twofold process that we're working. Good. Well, I'll actually I'll have a link to the Three Rangers Foundation uh, in the show notes. Also, your your foundation helps people who are injured, but does it also is it for anyone? Maybe people needing financial assistance, or is it for the, just for those suffering from injuries, whether they're PTSD or physically related? Um, no, it, it is not just injury. So, again, we have a, a pretty broad scope. Uh, we, we help veterans of all eras uh, with, uh, you know, different different types of, uh, of needs. So we have a, a fitness and wellness director that's based up near Chicago. He has an amazing program. It's, uh, it's called the One Million Fit. He's got a, an online uh, fitness program that vets can sign up for. He actually runs a gym up in the Chicago area. Uh, but fitness and wellness play a big part in the, in this veteran rehabilitation. We have a financial director that helps us out with veterans in need for financial assistance. And then we have a, a series of other directors who do special projects but help out with mentorship, uh, getting additional folks into our system. Uh, so, again, we, we, we don't have a specific calling that, hey, you have to be of a post-9-11 or a certain type of injury, you know, if – if you have a need and uh, and we do our screen and and uh, and, and you fit into uh, our 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 system, then uh, we'll help you out. And and one of the things we want to do with the Three Rangers team is is we want to build our mentorship umbrella with additional folks that we've helped through the system. If we have a a soldier that's in need of financial assistance, he likes the capability that we provide. We'd like to get him back up on his feet. And then uh, a year from now, we'd love for him to be one of our mentors to talk about our programs and uh, and how he can fill that same process that 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 we helped him with uh, a year or two years ago. Yeah, I think that's a great plan right there to use the ones you've got. And um, 
is it three rangers foundation.org that's correct yeah okay. so yeah three rangers.com is the for-profit side the whiskey and they have some other products they sell um the the whiskey map shows all the different locations where uh, the whiskey's being sold uh, across the u.s okay and then uh three rangers foundation.org uh, is, uh, is, is our foundation website. Uh, we're actually right in the process right now, probably within the next two weeks. Uh, we, we have a company here in the Virginia Beach area that has done a complete, uh, website rebuild. So we're getting ready to launch a new site with some additional capabilities. Uh, they did some great work for us, uh, pro bono to, to help out the foundation. So we're excited about the partnerships and some of the, uh, the connectivity we're getting uh, based on our good work with veterans. Right. You know, there's a lot of good people out there that are that are wanting to that want to help out in some way and serve and donate. And that's good to hear that company did the website. You know, pro bono like that. Yeah, like I said uh, earlier, there, there's a lot of great patriotic folks out there, and, and uh, uh, our veteran population is small, but there, uh, there's a lot of folks out there who understand the amount of weight they carry, uh, not only through this conflict, but a lot of prior conflicts and you know we've got a lot of vietnam veterans right now that are uh that are getting a lot of the care that they they didn't get um you yeah. know i um my, my oldest daughter is in a uh, an orthotics and uh, prosthetics master's program at the university of harford right now and and one of the things that they're seeing with all these advanced prosthetics with the current global war on terror injuries is that there's a population of Vietnam veterans who have been walking around on uh, 40-year-old, out-of-date prosthetics, and they also want to get this new advanced technology. So it's adding an additional burden to the VA system, uh, but these guys are just as well-deserved of this new technology as anybody else. So uh, it, it's great to see that they have these uh, college programs, these new uh, prosthetic companies that are that are really doing uh, yeoman's work in, in building this technology and making these guys more whole. Oh, yeah, I agree. Well, anything else, Larry, that you want to talk about or, or anything we've missed that you feel is important to share? Um, no, Dad, this is, this is amazing. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, again, anytime um, uh, we get to talk about you know, these, these great heroes and, and, and giants that we walked amongst, uh, I, I feel blessed to have been a part of this mission. Uh, I love talking about these young kids that I served with. Uh, they're 23 years ago, so they're not, they're not young kids anymore. Uh, but we, we have a great, uh, a great group of folks who, who accomplished, um, a big task under tough circumstances. And, and again, it's, it's great to be a part of it and stay connected with them. Uh, and the three Rangers foundation was built by, some guys who were part of that mission also. So it's a, it's a great connection, uh, with some great folks behind it who, who understand, uh, veteran needs. So again, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Uh, you know, we'll definitely stay in touch and, uh, we'll get you some more, uh, some more task force ranger folks on your, on your podcasts. So. That'd be great. I really appreciate you, sir. You are an American hero and it's my honor to speak with you today. Awesome. Thanks again, Tad. Appreciate it. So.